So today we're going to begin this uh, th three-part um, series designed to make us just a little bit uncomfortable and hopefully better. It's entitled um, One Another in the subtitle, Choosing to Love Unconditionally in a Politically Divided World. And so be before we go any further, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your purpose and for your plan. And I thank you for your church. It's wonderful and diverse and sometimes messy. And Lord, I, I believe this is uh, a place that we can have this conversation, a safe place where you're sons and daughters. And, and we just say we love you and help us to love each other. And you're by today we pray. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You can be seated. So we all know that there are uh, two topics that make the people most nervous, right, anywhere, like even at, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or, you know, in the church, politics and religion are those two topics that can get some people nervous, right? Now, I found it very difficult to stay away from the topic of religion in church, <laughs> but um, I found it, you know, it can be pretty fairly easy to stay away from the topic of politics. But here's the thing. When, whenever something Jesus says specifically intersects something that we're wrestling with in culture, and we are wrestling with it right now, right? Specifically at a time like this in the life of a nation, we should talk about it. We should have a conversation about it in the church, right? And in fact, I kind of look forward to talking about it because the words of Jesus are so relevant and they're so extraordinarily relevant to everything that's happening in our nation right now. And so the division, that's no news, right? There's division. The division created by our, our current political context and climate intersects directly with something that Jesus taught. And so uh, we just wanted to take some time and talk about this. We're, we're what, what, five, six weeks away from our election this year. So we're going to look at this. And since we are sons and daughters of God and part of a diverse and geographically dispersed body of Christ, the church all around the country and the world, it's even more important for us to talk about this because we are set up in our culture to be divided. And especially because of what we're about to experience in the next few weeks leading up to the election. And so I don't know about you, but if, if you go back with me uh, four years to our last election, that was a particularly um, kind of a heated and loud conversation that was happening in our culture, if you remember. And so um, I remember just becoming extremely uh, aware of the diversity of political views, even in our churches on, on Sunday morning, that even, the Sunday that was following the 2016 election. I was, I was a pastor um, down in Bayfield at the time. And I remember the Sunday after that election. You know, here's what happened. If you can go back in time with me, many of you will remember. Um, it's the Sunday after the 2016 election, which, you know, meant churches maybe in primarily Republican, you know, counties, some of them maybe saying a little louder on, on that particular Sunday, right? And churches that were filled with primarily Democrats, it was probably a different story. And I, I mean, many of you remember it. It was, it was an emotional week and there was an emotional, there was outcry that was happening. You know, on the streets, there was some of that noise that was happening. People were in shock, honestly, on both sides. And so I remember getting on social media after services that Sunday, and I actually went back to see my own post from that morning. Um, this is what I, I shared on Facebook on November 9th, 2016. This is what I wrote. And as I was reading it to myself, it felt like I was preaching to myself. So um, <laughs> this is, and I quote, and I quote myself. This is what I wrote. I like so many others, I'm glad to see this election cycle finished. How many of you can see us saying that again this year when this <laughs> election cycle is done? I don't remember ever seeing so much hate, mudslinging, and selfishness in my entire life, not to mention 
Unforgivably poor spelling and grammar. Last night was particularly bad. <laughs> I don't know why I mentioned that, but I did. For those of you that refrained from pointing fingers and calling names, thank you. It takes maturity to not repay evil with evil, but it leaves a mark on people when you refrain. Today's verse from our student ministry message series that we were doing at the time, this is what I was referring to, and it was actually a verse on honoring um, mother and father, your parents. Today's verse from our student message series takes me back to a simpler time watching my own parents cast their vote and praying for America when I was a kid. Without all the mess, at least from my context as a, as a young person, at least in my household, that we had to endure this election. I am thankful for my parents' influence on my life. At the least, I feel like I have the good sense not to tear my American brothers and sisters down for their vote. That almost seems old-fashioned after enduring this season. So listen, I'm not really celebrating this morning because of who won or who lost. All I know is that Father God asked me to pray for our president and our leaders and to lift them up, and so I will be doing that. And regardless of the hate, the off-color remarks and awful comments you have made in the last few months, I will not unfriend you or disassociate myself from you. We don't need more hate. We need more love and forgiveness on repeat. So there I am, 2016, Sean preaching to 2020, Sean. and there were a lot of posts, I don't know, if you were, I've, I've been in the social media world, um, you know, it's part of my job at, at different times, I'm running anywhere between 15 to 16 different uh, social media accounts for churches and businesses and districts, and so I'm, I'm on the, the platforms, I'm in that world. And so there were a lot of posts from many of my friends in and outside of the church that morning. Some of you will, you know, remember some of the conversations or maybe some of the things that you read that week. And this is essentially, you know, what some of them said. I'm just going to pull. This is, this is similar to what we would have read. I, I came to church this morning. Somebody that is sitting in the church. I came to church this morning looking for reassurance. I'm scared. No one even mentioned the election. I feel abandoned by my church. So it, it wasn't part of the topic. It wasn't part of the conversation. And of course, as a pastor, I'm reading something like that. I was associated at the time. You read that kind of stuff and it kind of gives you a sinking feeling, right? Don't feel so good about that. And maybe for you know, the Republicans who would read something like that, it was uncomfortable. And here we are now getting uncomfortable together again. But you know, the Republican could, could have read that and countered, you're scared of what? We won. Now, if the Democrat Party had won, then, then we would have something to be scared about, right? And then, you know, that, that's what maybe a Republican was thinking if they would read a, a statement like that. But the one who posted that status is thinking something entirely different. And, and you know, so she uh, has experienced this in a completely different way, right? So why is that? Well, here's the thing. Nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. And as you know, because you've been a victim of this or maybe you've been a part of this, you can relate. You can, you, you've probably experienced this maybe even in this season. You can, you can raise a lot of money peddling fear, right? Uh, you, you, you can't raise as much if you're not. I mean, people are saying stuff like this and, and you've probably heard some of this from other people and from other sources. You know, the Republicans are gonna take away our opportunity to vote. The Democrats are gonna take away your guns, so help us make sure this doesn't happen. You can give $10 or $25 or $100 to make sure it doesn't happen, right? You've you've been getting the texts. People are saying stuff like, well, if the president is reelected, it's gonna be the end of the world. Or on the other hand, if if a socialist Democrat is elected, it's gonna be the end of the world. So help us out with your donation of $25 or $50 or $100, right? 
Now, I, I mean, if you peddle enough fear, we get this, right? You, you can raise a lot of money. I'm not trying to give you any ideas this morning. I'm just telling you, and you already know it, it works. And that's the culture we're in. But here's the question that we're going to start off with this morning. What exactly, just within the context of the United States of America, what exactly do we fear? What do we fear? And I'll tell you. I, I, I think I know the answer. Because the answer is the same for most of us. It's the same for all of us. We've, we've seen it play out this year during a pandemic. We've seen it play out every year. At the macro level, it's this. It's loss. It's loss. We fear something's going to be taken away. We feel the loss of control. We feel the loss of opportunity. We feel the loss for the future of our children. We feel the loss of our culture, the loss of our freedoms, right? The, the loss of our progress because we've made progress in some areas. White people, we fear what might happen. Brown and black people fear what already has happened. For them, it's not theory, but there's some history to it. And it wasn't that long ago. But, but there's fear for all of us. And it's the fear of the unknown. And you can't raise as much money. You can't raise very much money if you don't peddle that fear. And so that's part of the culture and the context that we're in right now. We're in this culture. We're in this season in the life of our nation where everybody's peddling fear. And if we're not careful, we can be victims of that. And not only will we be victims, we will be what we're going to be talking about this morning. We will be divided. So no matter what side of the fence you sit on, or if you're a moderate or maybe an independent thinker, can I just step back for just a second before we go too much farther and just remind us of the series that we just finished. Remember this series, the Big Mouth series? <laughs> we spent five weeks talking about being quick to listen, slow to the speak, slow to the conversation, let rid, let, let go of all bitterness, anger, and wrath. Be a builder with your words. When you go to that construction site, God tells us, Paul tells us to build that person up, not having torn them apart. Paul tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So take all of that, take all of that from the last five weeks that we've just talked about. Maybe there was a plan to that. <laughs> and apply it to what we're going to be talking about in the next three weeks. Because whether you want to think it or not, we have a wide political spectrum represented in the body of Christ. And, and I got to tell you, we should be okay with that. In fact, I would say this, if you're looking for a movement where everybody agrees, even politically, it's not the church. The church should be diverse. Jesus talks about the diversity of his church. And because the church of Jesus Christ is diverse, what this means for us is that we have an unprecedented opportunity to model for our community and for our nation what it will look like to disagree politically. Because listen, we're gonna to continue to disagree politically on some stuff and love unconditionally. Now, here's the question. I don't want you to answer too loud. I don't want you to say amen. I don't want you to say uh-huh. I don't want you to do anything. I especially don't want you to throw anything. I guess if you're watching online, you can throw something at the TV screen and I won't, I won't even know, but I'll just keep on going. <laughs> but, but here we go. For starters, as we start this conversation this morning, I want to say this, this conversation, this is for you. This is I really want you to hear that because here's the thing, you are who we're gonna be talking about today. And, and understand, I'm right there in the audience with you, uh, what we're gonna be talking about today. But here's the deal. We think we've got a handle on this. We think we do. 
And, and that's why we're gonna spend three weekends you know, talking about this. We, 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 we come into this conversation and we think, you know, I'm fine. I, I, I really want us to dig down and maybe face some things that maybe we've never faced before and, and they might be a little scary and maybe a little bit terrifying sometimes. I'm, I'm not gonna ask you to change political parties, I promise, not at all. I just want you to think a little bit differently as a Christ follower because that's who we are first, right? And the question I wanna ask, don't answer out loud, is do you wanna do this? Do you wanna do this? And do you think you can do this? Which on the service, we're all like, oh yeah, I can do this. I've been doing this all the time. I'm already doing it. But here's what I don't mean. I don't just mean tolerate people from other parties and other persuasions. I'm not, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, even those that are out on the fringes, even those that are out on the extremes, not just tolerate, not just be nice with an eye roll. Let me ask this question in a more pointed way. And this is, this is kind of the big question as we begin this series. I think this goes to the heart of it. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith? Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics? Which is what many of us do. So we're gonna talk about this next week, but everybody wants a piece of Jesus, right? I mean, in the United States of America, Jesus is a part of every political party. And, uh, you know, he's lockstep. No matter, you know, what your thing is, if you're a Christian at all, or any version of Christianity, it's like, oh, yeah, he's with me. And again, we're going to see next week, you can go anywhere in the Bible and find something Jesus said or somebody in the Bible to support your political view. The real issue is, are you willing and am I willing to put our political filter behind instead of in front of our faith filter? Are we willing to evaluate and reevaluate our politics in light of what specifically is used to us? If you wanna just put it as simple as I can get it, are you and can you be willing to follow Jesus? <laughs> I mean, that's the mission of our church, right? Jesus is the headline. We want to inspire people to follow him. So are you willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus creates spaces between you and your political party and your party's platform and your party's candidate? And I'm just telling you, many believers are not able to do that, especially in the climate that we're in now, because it's so easy to be divided and it's so easy to just kind of rush to our comfortable corner. And it's so easy to just assume that God and Jesus are just in lockstep with us. Now, Jesus, this is what's so amazing. This is why we get to talk about this this morning. Apparently, Jesus saw this coming. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the election, although I guess he sees everything, so he saw that too. But what I'm talking about is Jesus saw division coming into the world and into the church. In fact, this is ex extraordinary. After, after Jesus had his final Passover meal with his disciples, he prays, he prays a prayer in John. We had this conversation, I think it was actually when we were um, going through a series when we were launching our connect groups because we we're talking about um, coming together. That was in the conversation. So, this is a prayer in John, and sometimes it's called the high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus does two interesting things. Number one, he prays for us. And so we're gonna look at that in just a minute. And then number two, Jesus had a prayer request. 
Now you guys, you guys, if you've grown up in church, you know what a prayer request is. You're sitting in a circle, you're about, you know, maybe, maybe finish Sunday school and, and, uh, or, or your small group and somebody says, anybody, you know, have a prayer request. And so somebody will raise their hand and you share a request for others to agree with you in prayer. So imagine sitting in a circle with Jesus. <laughs> anybody have a prayer request? And Jesus is like, yep, I got one. Jesus, you have a prayer request? Really? Yeah. Jesus had a prayer request. This is the passage. I love that we get to read this. John records it for us. We discovered what Jesus asked the Father for. Now, wouldn't you like to know what Jesus prayed for? This is, we, we know how we pray. We know how, you know, thank you for this day. Help us, you know, with my kids in school. This is a kind of a weird, weird year. Pray for the teachers. God, we pray for them. Be with my kids. Bless this food that we're about to eat. You know, the praise that we pray. You know all that stuff. But what did Jesus pray for? And so here it is. This is pretty cool to have this recorded for us. He's at the very end of his recorded time on the planet Earth. And in a few hours, he's, he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified. And everything moves really quickly after that. So he's praying here at the end. And he's asking something of his heavenly father. And what he asked of his heavenly father has everything in the world to do with any of you and any of us who consider ourselves Jesus followers. This is really, it's really, it's remarkable to get to see this. So here's what he prays. He says, Father... The hour has come. Here we are. Three and so a half. when I told Deanna about the topic for the next Here we, series, I thought she would be so excited. Here I am echoing but myself. She said. <laughs> Here's what he prays. <laughs> Father, the hour has come. So here we are. We're, we're three and a half years into his ministry, walking around with these guys, his disciples, trying to explain, you know, what God is like and explain what the kingdom of God is like. And here we are at the end. The hour has come. The time is nigh, right? Glorify your son, who's about to be arrested, who's about to be crucified. And again, it moves really quickly after this. Glorify your son. In other words, lift me up in, in such a way that people recognize who I am. I'm the light of the world. Lift me up, Father God, so they can see that and recognize that we're connected, that your son may glorify you. And the interesting thing is the hour when Jesus crucified, the, the, the thing that he's referring to here, the hour in which you know, God was most glorified, we would have been the most horrified because it was a horrifying scene, right? It was a crucifixion. We'd have looked away because he sent his son to redeem mankind. And Jesus is like, okay, we're at that hour. That's just right around the corner. But before all those events kick off, there's something I've got to ask you to do, Father God. And here's what he says. He goes on, verse 11, he says, and I am no longer in the world, but they, talking about the disciples, they are still in the world and I am coming to you. So Jesus has told the disciples that he's leaving and Peter kept on saying, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus is like, uh, where I'm going, you can't go. Peter's like, I'm gonna go with you wherever. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Okay, not right now. <laughs> but, but what comes next is amazing. And this is just my opinion, but I think what comes next, a lot of us, we don't know or we don't remember or we choose not to remember. So maybe you're gonna be an overly educated believer after today, but this has been in the Gospel of John the whole time here. And here is Jesus' prayer request to the Father at the very end. Here's what he says. Holy Father, keep them in your name. These 12 guys. In other words, you know, some translations uh, will, will, will translate, keep them in your name. They'll say, protect them by the power of your name. Protect them, Father. Keep them. The name which you have given me so that... Here's the purpose of the protection. Here's specifically how I'm asking you to protect them, Father. Now, the, 
The interesting thing is he's already given the disciples some bad news. He's already told them, okay, here's what's ahead. Here's what your future looks like. You're going to be arrested, flogged, and beaten. Some of you are going to be killed. That's your future. Great. I wish you would have told us that earlier on, Jesus. (laughs) But now they're in. They've given their lives for this. They're already there. But, But he's praying that God would protect them. But listen, he's not praying for their physical protection. He's praying for something that he thinks is even more important than their physical protection, even knowing what's coming ahead. That they may be, here it is, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be, this is his prayer, one prayer request. Here's what he wanted protected more than anything else, that they may be one, even as we are one. At the very end, the thing that Jesus was most concerned about was their unity and their oneness. Because here's what he knew. And here's, here's what he's going to say in the next few verses. He knew that as long as they were in lockstep together and in lockstep with his heavenly father, that the world would indeed change. But if they ever get divided and splintered, things are going to stall out. So then in verse 20, skipping down if you're following along, he prays for you and he prays for me. And what he prays for us, this is amazing. My prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only. So it's not just for the 12 that are in the room. I'm not just praying for the disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation of Christ followers all the way up to us. And what do you think he prays for us? And the answer is not what we pray for us a lot of times. In fact, here's here's something that should probably move us into action this morning. It should probably motivate us. I mean, it's convicting to me. My hunch is that virtually maybe none of us who consider ourselves Jesus followers, a small number have ever asked God for what Jesus asked God for in this conversation. Virtually none of us have ever prayed the prayer that Jesus prayed here, even though he modeled it. And clearly this was so close to his heart. And so important to him that in these final hours, you know, which, which maybe is the problem, right? Because as we're going to discover, maybe if the church, maybe if people like me had been begging God for this, leading towards this, pleading for this, then the world would be a different and better place. My prayer is not for them alone, he says, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them all of them, all of them in the first century. That meant the Jew and the Gentile, which was about as diverse of cultures as you could get, by the way, if you remember that. The Jew and the Gentile, the rich and the poor, the slaves and the free, the military leaders and the soldiers and the tax gatherers and those from whom the taxes were being collect, uh, gathered, the educated and the uneducated, and you know everybody. So if we bring it up into the 21st century, let's bring it there. It means Republicans. It means Democrats. It means the privileged. It means the not so privileged. It means the independents and the indecisive and the libertarians and the librarians and the black and the white and the beige. Married people, the single people. In other words, all of us. That all of the people who call me Lord, no matter where they're from or what they've experienced or how good life has treated them or how poorly life has treated them, connected or disconnected, I pray that all of them, this vast array, this extraordinary dispersion of people with different experiences, I pray that somehow all of them, this is amazing, that they may all be one. 
which sounds impossible. It sounds impossible. Jesus was convinced, as impossible as that may sound, that this was mission critical. Which meant, even though it seemed impossible, it was absolutely imperative. This was just not an add-on. This was not a, wouldn't it be nice if we all just get along? Why can't we be friends? And so that means that we, followers of Jesus, should become intentional about ensuring that there is unity in the local churches and in the larger body of Christ because this is what Jesus prayed for. This is what he prayed for, and it doesn't come naturally, does it? And the reason it doesn't come naturally is because, well, we only know what we know. And we've got to stop and just recognize this every once in a while. We only know, we were were raised by who we were raised by, and we've experienced what we've experienced. And this is just how it is. We tend to run to our little corners that are familiar, and that can be politically, that can be relationally, in every kind of way. And Jesus is saying, my church is going to be so diverse, my church is going to be so international, and my church is going to be uh, so many different languages, and so many different colors, and so many different cultures. If there's any way, Father God, that you could make them one, that's my prayer. Jesus was convinced, as impossible as this may sound, that this was mission critical, which meant even though it seemed impossible, it was imperative. So he continues this prayer. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that, so here's another purpose clause. Do you know why he prayed for oneness? Why did he do it? This is the shocker. The reason that he prayed for oneness really doesn't even have anything to do with us. He prayed for oneness because of what he wanted to do through us. And there can be a lack of unity in a local church and the church can probably survive. It can hang on by a thread. But if there's a lack of unity in the local church or in the church, the will of God will not be accomplished by the church. Look at what he says. The reason I want them to be one is so that the world... Not the people in the church, the people outside of the church, the people outside of the faith, the people who roll their eyes and drive on by so that when they see the unity in the church, despite the diversity in the church, that big, beautiful mess and between the churches that they may actually come to the conclusion. It says that they may believe, that is that they may be convinced that you have sent me. Jesus says, look, guys, this isn't an add-on. This is mission critical. The way the world is going to sit up and take notice of this beautiful, diverse thing that we call the local church is when the church works together and is unified. And even though we disagree and sometimes agree to disagree, even though we've been raised in such different ways that we will likely never see the world the same way politically and even in other ways. And yet at the same time, there's this beautiful, sometimes messy and unusual unity. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, this is the way forward. This is what will eventually get the attention of the empire. This is is what will eventually get the attention of the pagan world. There's never been anything like it. And you can't sacrifice your unity, church, for anything. 
you know what he was doing? He was actually asking his heavenly father to come along later and nudge us. (laughs) He's praying for us. Nudge that generation of, of believers and the next generation of believers and the next to nudge us toward what he had just commanded his disciples to do a few minutes earlier and then what he prays for us later on in the context. And when he was having that Passover meal with his disciples, in that conversation, this is what he said, look, I'm about to leave. And Peter, shh, be quiet, Peter. <laughs> You're not going, but I'm about to leave. And here's the one thing that I don't want you to forget. Here's the one thing. I'm gonna give you a new command. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna establish a new covenant, it says. And this new command is gonna replace all the other commands. And here's the thing, it's very simple. Nobody even really needs to write this down because it's so simple and easy to remember. And my new command is this, John 15, verse 12. You are to love one another. To which the disciples will say, well, that's really not new. Okay, we could do that. And Jesus says, I'm not through. You're to love one another as I have, look at this, as I have loved you. Church, we don't get to make this up. He says, I've modeled this for you. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. And this was a new command. It wasn't a new suggestion. These were our marching orders. And again, it's not even about us because look what he says. And the reason that I want you to love each other isn't just, oh, I want everybody to get along. It's, it's, it's because by this kind of unique love for one another, even though you're not like one another, because of this unique kind of love for each other, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. So now Jesus, after he's given them and given us this command, he's praying, Father, please help them to get this right. Please help them as, as, as this thing expands and it grows and it goes from Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Please help them to love each other as different as they're gonna be in so many different ways. Back to John 17, his prayer, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. There it is again. And I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to, don't miss this, complete unity. Not political unity. I'm talking about unity of purpose, unity of, of a worldview, unity of that Jesus is the headline, that he's where it's at. That they would see each other the way that I see each of them, that they would see me the way that I'm to be seen. This worldview that includes a God that loves them and a savior that was sent to die for them, that my love for them would be so encapsulating that it would define and redefine everything for them. And then look at what he says. Here it is again. It's not about you. It's not about me. This is not even about us. He says, then the world will know with certainty then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He was saying, Heavenly Father, you and I know everything is riding on this. Everything. 
not around the politics, not around culture, not around language, not around bits and pieces of their worldview, not around you know, how they do baptism or communion or how they sing or when they sing or what time of the day they have their service or where they have their service. We know that there is a core that they must be unified around and that is Jesus. And if they are, the world is gonna change. And here's the cool thing. After the resurrection of Jesus, it happened. It happened. After the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles went to the streets of Jerusalem and they clearly, they went with one purpose. What was that purpose? Their purpose was to make disciples of all nations. They went with that purpose and they went with one message. The message was Jesus is the Messiah. He's the headline. He's the one that we're going to talk about. He's the king that has come to reverse the order of things. He's the one that we're going to highlight. He's come to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And then he laid down his life unlike any other king. Jesus laid down his life for his followers to create an on-ramp to the Father. And then they went to the streets of Jerusalem with one single command. And what was that command? To love each other the way that they had seen Jesus love them. One purpose, one message, one single command. So here's the thing. I mean, (laughs) you're all very intelligent and smart people. So you know this, but let me just say it anyway, because I guess I like to get get myself into trouble. But your candidate, your political candidate for president, or really for anything, Your political candidates will win or lose based on how American citizens vote on the first Tuesday in November. But listen, the church will win or lose based on our behavior every single day between now and then. I'll say it again. (laughs) Your political candidate, and listen, I hope everybody votes will win or lose based on how citizens of the United States vote on a single Tuesday in November. But the church wins or loses. The community wins or loses. In some ways, our nation wins or loses based on how we, the church, treat each other and love each other and love our world every single day between now and then. That's why, and I say it strong because Jesus was so clear, we must not overlook this. It's not an add-on. It's not just be nice. It'd be nice if we do it. We must not let anything divide us. And we must not allow anyone to divide us. So remember this. We're gonna talk about this when we get together in the third week of this series in particular. This is so important. But it was Christianity. It was these unique upside down uh, doctrines of Christianity that shaped Western civilization. Almost no one would disagree with that. Even, even staunch atheists will agree that it was the message of Jesus Christ that shaped Western civilization. It wasn't American politics. It wasn't Republicans or Democrats. It was Christianity that shaped Western civilization. It was the teaching of Jesus, not our political parties that laid the groundwork for our modern sense of justice and fairness and dignity of every single individual. And we've not gotten that right all the time. And we continue to get it wrong in some big places. But the hope is not the perfect, in the perfect political party. It's just not. The hope is the message and the teaching of Jesus because it was Jesus. And then the message of Jesus through the church that introduced these values and these ways in the beginning. And so 
Why in the world would we opt for something less than that? Why in the world would we allow ourselves to be so divided over that? Listen, throughout our very short time as a nation, and it's so short in the timeline of history, so short, both political parties, both of our current political parties have gotten it wrong. During our short history as a nation, both our political parties and their leaders have gotten it wrong. They failed us morally. They failed us in terms of their leadership. We've had some great leaders. We've had some not so great leaders. And then there's this. You know this, but we forget. During, during our oh-so-short history as a nation, several parties have turned out their lights. We're, we're, they, they're not there anymore because their party is over. Are there any Whigs or Federalists in the room this morning? And so here's what we forget. We can be so short-sighted. There were entire political parties in our short history as a nation that were so adamant about certain things. And they just kind of went away. So here's the question again. Why would we, as followers of an eternal king, allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems and temporary political leaders and temporary political platforms, why would we allow ourselves to be divided by lesser kings? And here's the, maybe the most embarrassing thing to me. Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by fear? Jesus' most oft-repeated command was fear not. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And you know what? So many of us are so afraid of a potential something that's out there in the future to be afraid of. So let's just pause for just a moment as we wrap up this morning and think about the context in which Jesus said, fear not. You've got the temple on one side that can't wait to have him arrested. And you have the empire on the other side that is gonna perform the execution. And in the middle of those colossal forces, Jesus says to his apostles, he smiles and he says, guys, just ignore them. Fear not, a king has come. And when the king's people rally around the message of the king, we know that extraordinary things can happen because extraordinary things did happen in history. Why? Come on, this is, this is why would we allow any political view a view that we might outgrow, a view that you might abandon. Isn't it true that every 10 years or so and every 15 years or so, it's said that your views, even your political views, they change and they adjust. Things that you were all adamant about. And we're all kind of like, well, okay, maybe, I don't know. And, and we change. And so I, I, don't your views change? Hopefully because we're learning and we're growing and becoming more like Christ, right? So it's a process. So why would we run the risk? Why would we allow any strongly held or even not so strongly held political view divide us from a living, breathing you. A you that Jesus made and died for. Why would we do that? When Jesus' single command is, look, you're gonna believe what you're gonna believe in the context of who you are and, and, and where you grew up and what made you you. Vote for who you're gonna vote for. That's an important thing, vote. But, but don't you mistreat someone made in my image. 
Why would we allow a political view to divide us from an actual living, breathing you that Jesus died for? The you beside you, the, the you that lives next door to you, the, the you that works one cubicle over from you, or best of all, or maybe worst of all, the you that you're related to. Why? Come on, this is common sense. Why would we not fight for and struggle for and sacrifice for the unity our king prayed for? It was the unity of the church that got the attention of a pagan world. And eventually, even the empire responsible for crucifying Jesus. So don't answer out loud. Just answer in your heart. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Let me just say this. I don't say this about much, but I can say it with confidence this morning. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for us. And this is God's will for every church because this is what Jesus prayed for. So I wanna make two suggestions as we start off on this journey together. Just two little action steps at the end of this conversation this morning. Would you pray like Jesus? Pray. Because most of us have maybe never prayed a prayer like this before. Would you pray for oneness? Would you pray for oneness? I'm gonna give us just a little prayer, it's short. You might wanna take a picture if you're taking notes, write this down, do a screenshot if you're watching online. I'm just gonna have us all pray it out loud because this is God's will for us. Let me read it to you first and then we'll do it together, all right? Just this simple prayer. Father, make us one so we can influence many. This is not, let me say this, this is not about church growth. This is not about getting seats you know, filled up in the church. This is, isn't about getting more people in a building. This is about the universal church. And Jesus prayed this way. Jesus said, if, they'll, if, if they will just be one, the world's gonna know what I'm up to. If they will be one, the world will pay attention. Okay, so everybody look up. Can we pray this? Pray this for the context of our local church or if you're a part of another church and you just happen to stop by on our stream this morning or if you're here this morning, pray it for the context of your local church wherever you attend. But let's pray this this morning. Ready? On three. One, two, three. Father, make us one so we can influence many. This was the prayer of our Savior who hours later died. This is what he wanted protected, even more than the lives of his closest first century followers who were in the room. So let's pray this all together again. Ready? Three, two, one. Heavenly Father, make us one so we can influence many. Yeah. One more time. Father, make us one so we can influence many. Is the church looking for influence? No. But when we do this, It draws men unto him. The second thing I want us to do, for some of you, this will be like, yeah, I'm already doing this. I can do this, no problem. And then I want you to look for an opportunity to just, this is what I want you to do. I wanna kind of push us a little bit as we close this morning. I want you to look for an opportunity because some of you are gonna have to look to love unconditionally someone with whom you disagree politically. 
You're like, well, I don't even know anybody who I disagree with politically. (laughs) And that's a problem. That right there should kind of get you started, right? And can I, can I push just a little bit further? You know, as a mentor uh, in my life, as I was growing up and even learning, um, you know, the ropes in ministry, I said, you should put yourself in lots of conversations and lots of theological thinkers and people who are studying God's word and people who don't think like you so you can learn from them. And you can get in the context of relationships and it'll help you to love people better. I think Nick Reed, who has been a long time, um, you know, debater, uh, debate coach, would tell his team to, you know, know both sides of the argument, right? If you want to know the most, you've got to know both sides. And this isn't to learn the other side so you can argue better. That's not what this is about. That's a debate team. But this is learning the other side so you can love them better. So you can understand the context where they're coming from. This is maybe why we haven't learned anything for a while. Maybe for years, it's because we're so convinced that we're right. And we, when we continue to huddle in our own corners and where we're comfortable and we say things like, I just can't understand. And we've talked about this even in the last series. You know, I can't understand how anybody can believe that. Well, you just made a confession. There's something that you don't understand. I, I don't know how anybody can behave that way. You just made a confession. There's, there's something that you don't know. So we pray, Father God, I pray for oneness that we can influence those around us. And then I want you to look for an opportunity to love unconditionally someone with whom you disagree politically. And that may be harder than it normally is in our context right now because we're more divided, it seems, than we've ever been. And when you find someone that you can serve and you can love unconditionally, your light is gonna shine brighter. It is. Would you stand with me? I just wanna close with this. I know, I know... I know uh, know, what some of you are thinking, and I can understand this. I really do. There's going to be some criticism. Somebody's somebody's thinking, Sean, okay, you know, cool sermon, great, I appreciate it. But come on, Sean, you have to say things like this. I mean, you're you're just doing your job. Jesus said these things, and of course, you know, you're going to tell us what Jesus said, but then you just kind of wrapped it in a political wrapper. Uh, Come on, Sean, are are you being a little naive? And to that, I would say to you, no. And let me give you an example of something that's really naive. I want to point you to a savior, our savior. It was, it was when, you know, this first century rabbi who from, was from nowhere, as far away from the epicenter of activity as he can be, way, 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 way up north, standing out in that hot Syrian sun, surrounded by 12 guys who were younger than him, and they've got no political chops and no kind of power. They don't have anything going for them in that way. And right out there, in the blaze son, this first century rabbi, Jesus says this. He says, guys, I'm going to build my church, my people, my movement, my assembly, my following, my congregation, which by the way was illegal. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not overcome it. Now, now to see that in perspective, in context, that seems like it would be naive, Right? They, they look around, the disciples are saying, what, us? You're going to do what? You're going to do what? <laughs> right? 
That conversation seems bigger than life. It doesn't seem like it's going to be possible. He says, I'm going to start a movement, and guys, you're going to be a part of it, and neither Rome, nor the temple, nor any culture, nor any nation, nor every political party is ever going to stop it. Now, that's naive, but Jesus did it, and we are a part of it. The church is still alive and well, and we are a part of it. And our unique sacrificial oneness is the key to fueling it in our generation. Not my words, but from Jesus himself. So disagree politically, but love unconditionally. And let's pray for oneness. Let's pray for unity. Let's pray the prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Father God, help us to be one. God, you prayed this prayer to your heavenly father. You said, help him. I know that there's gonna come division. I know that there's gonna come opportunity for words to come out of their mouths that would divide, for words and actions that would come to tear people down rather than to build people up. And that's not what you've called us to do. So Lord, let us start with us. Let there be unity right here within your people as the beautiful mess that we are from so many different cultures and so many different leanings and so many different backgrounds and so many different stories. But you've called us together to do the miraculous, God, to do what seems impossible. And you've called us to make us one. So we go under one purpose and one banner and one mission. That's to know you and to make you known. So Father, our first heart and desire is to know you and to love you. And then as we know you and love you, you fill us with the love for the world around us. May we have that kind of influence today and tomorrow. In your mighty name.